We're going to go right on worshiping and exalting the Lord by reading Scripture. Psalm 34, uh, verse 18 will be our focus, but we're going to read the whole psalm so we can hear it all together this morning. Just remind you that David wrote this psalm at a time in his life when things were as difficult as they had ever been. But he begins by saying in verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him will have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, oh, children, rather, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory from them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteousness or those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray together. Now, Father, what you want us to know from your word, we pray for grace to be what is proclaimed in this moment. And Father, I simply ask that for everyone who is attentive in the Lord to this message, you provide what we need for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Of course, you may be seated. And again, David is writing Psalm 34, and he's been through a lot of difficult things. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So let's put a lie to death on the authority of Scripture. Living a life unto the Lord does not lead to ease and comfort in this world. David has done the right thing and yet goes punished for it. When no one else would stand up to Goliath and represent the Lord, David volunteered. And in that moment, from then on, he becomes the target of jealous King Saul the most powerful man in the country. David's own family, his dad, his brothers, undervalue him, underestimate him. And circumstances have happened in his life that he's separated from his best friend Jonathan, and he's on the run living life as a refugee. And he's ended, not in, ended up not in a protected and comfortable bedroom, but in a cave, right, of Adullam. So what is going on here? I mean, David has a heart for God. He's described as a man after God's own heart. And yet that has led him to being in a dark cave. So in order maybe to understand these things and approach this scripture in particular, verses 15 through 18, correctly, I want to give an illustration 
I want to give you two scenes from my life. Both happened about 20 years ago when I was in college. I was a I was a junior in uh, second semester, and I needed a part-time job. So I was sitting in the college cafeteria and opened up the student newspaper, and right there on one of the very front page or first pages was an advertisement that said, now hiring. I'd been thinking to myself, I need a job, and here's an advertisement. Now hiring, Cracker Barrel is hiring. My eyes got big because I said, man, this is a win-win. I love to eat Cracker Barrel. Anybody with me on the meatloaf and mashed potatoes? Or at least I could do that back in college. And they're hiring, I'm going to go and I'm going to call the number and I'm going to get a job interview. And I did, and on the spot, they hired me. And I purposed to be the best employee that I could. I sat at a cash register. In fact, this pulpit kind of feels like that cash register a little bit. Stand there for eight hours a day. I underestimated how exhausting that would actually be. I'd finish my eight-hour shift and, man, my my legs were in pain and I just wanted to go home and sit down. And I purposed to be the best employee I could be. Showed up on time. Very quickly, if they needed somebody to fill in for somebody who called out, they called me. I said, I'll be there. And I don't know if you know this is how it works at Cracker Barrel. They give you one of these deals right here. The apron. Now, this is a little hint for you. The newest employees get an apron without their name on it. You just want to pay attention to that maybe the next time you go. It says Rising Star on it, and they have a little name tag, just so you know that. Got somebody brand new in that case, so give them much patience. But after you've been there for a little while, they give you an apron with your name on it. And then, as you demonstrate that you're a good employee, they reward you by giving you a star. And so, the more stars you have on your apron, the longer you've been there, And in theory, the better employee you've proven to be over time. Until you get to five stars, then they give you the switch out and you get kind of the purple one. So if you go there and you got purple apron person, you should be be good to go. Now, I was all well and good showing up on time. In fact, I was in college, y'all, and they said, we need somebody to come in on Fridays and Saturdays and work the open shift. you got to be there at 5.15. I started getting up on Fridays and Saturdays at 4.30 to get myself there and work the first shift. And I'm all good with all of it. I wanted to get a perfect night on the register. I wanted every cent accounted for. There was another employee who started working there about a month after me. And I noticed pretty quickly she was rather quick to call out, leave early. And that was what it was until I showed up from work working alongside of her and she had more stars than me. And when that happened, I'm just going to tell you, I wasn't very happy about that. I said, that's not, what do you think I said? Fair. It's not how I thought this was going to go. I'm demonstrating that I'm a good employee, so therefore I should be rewarded. That's scene number one right? Scene number two. The whole reason I was working at Cracker Barrel was to save up money to buy an engagement ring because I was going to marry Julie. That's what I was there for. Scene number two is my wedding day. Now, I didn't do much of the planning and preparing, but I had done some of the planning and preparing. And Julie and I were going to get married outside. And you already know where this is going. So they had prepared and planned and they set up and it was beautiful. But June 16th of that year, worst thunderstorm in the history of Nash County came through. And right before the wedding ceremony was set to begin, 
the whole sky turned black, storm came in, and what I thought was going to take place doesn't take place. We have to adjust. Now, scene number one, when things don't go the way I thought they should, I wanted to walk out. Second scene, when things don't go the way that I should, there was not a single moment where I said to myself, well, this is off. This isn't how I thought this was going to go. No, adjusted, moved forward, got married, best day of my life. What's the difference? Scene one, employee, boss. Scene two, covenant on the basis of love. When it comes to suffering in your life, if your understanding of your relationship with God is sort of, he's the boss, I'm the employee, and if I'm diligent and faithful, he should reward me, you're going to end up in some hard places in life. But if your understanding of your relationship with God is that your relationship is on the basis of a covenant of love, then no matter what might happen in life, you're going to be able to endure because you know the one to whom you've pledged your soul. I want us to enter the study this morning with that understanding. But I do think it's worth you considering King Saul viewed himself as God's employee and therefore God was obligated to do things for him. David saw himself as God's child. How do you view yourself? Because it's very common, I have to tell you, very common for us to get in our minds Yeah, maybe God's the boss, but he's obligated to do things for me on the basis of my performance. Here's what I want you to know, friends. You do not, you do not ever, ever, ever want God to treat you on the basis of your performance. Because if you've got it in your mind that you're a good employee, you don't know you. You don't know who you really are. And you don't know who you or what you really deserve. And then on the basis of that, I want to tell you, If you do know by God's grace who you really are, how you really have sinned against him and sought to be the boss yourself and fire him, then you would be overwhelmed with grace that he would call you his child. Not forsaken, I am a child of God. Do you know who loves to sing that? Those who knew who they were apart from Christ and now who they are in Christ. So with that said, I want to use the understanding of those two scenes, worker, covenant and then give you three points from psalm 34 i want to start with this real simple point the world that we live in is broken point number one we live in a broken world look with me in verse uh, 17 when the righteous cry for help the lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles the lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit many are the afflictions of the righteous so here are our words troubles wouldn't it be nice if you just had trouble god just give me trouble tomorrow maybe i can handle that but it's not singular is it it's plural wouldn't it be nice if you only had one thing to worry about? Have you, uh, do, you, do you find this true? When you got trouble, you got troubles. The old saying we've got is when it rains, it... Does it ever feel like that? And, and then, not only do we have troubles, plural, we have this description, broken hearted. 
Can we talk about this quite literally for a moment? The Bible teaches that your heart is the operating center. It's the seat of your existence. It's in the heart that you have thoughts and plans and desires and hopes and aspirations. The heart is the real you, and things can happen in life that your entire operating center is broken. It's broken. Job. And he went through it. He lost just about everything there was to lose in life. And he said, man is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. Anybody relate to that statement, right? Romans 8, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our redemption. Or Jesus' promise in the Gospel of John, in this world you will have trouble. Not only brokenhearted, crushed, crushed in spirit. Not scraped in spirit or bruised in spirit or marked up a little bit. Crushed in spirit. What that means is there isn't any part of you, there isn't any part of you that's left untouched by trouble and suffering. There are things that break us and crush us. I know I've said before, but say again, every one of us in the room is either headed for trouble, in trouble, or just coming out of it to, in time, go back into it. And you know what would be um, a little more bearable when it comes to trouble and suffering is that if we could see it coming, right? But that's not how it happens, is it? Oftentimes, the most crushing things happen when we don't expect them couldn't predicted them and in a moment everything in life changes have you ever been there the future that you laid out for yourself in your own mind vanishes in a moment as you realize things are not going to turn out the way that I thought they would it's disorienting isn't it to come to see how little control we really have over our own lives we're much more fragile We're much more fragile than we think we are. I think the last uh, 18 or so months have revealed to us that we're fragile, more fragile, but I'm not sure that we've yet grasped how fragile we really are. Things happen in the world to reveal the world really is broken. Earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, what we might call the natural world. But we also live in a world where our bodies break down, where people we thought we could trust, they don't keep their word. You know, uh, recently, I was going through some files in my office and had a folder there in one of my drawers and pulled it out and began to go through it, and it was, um, it was all the weddings that I've done. And so I just started to glance through them over the last 15, 16, 17 years. Now, particularly when I was younger, I would always make this, th- I've made the same point over time, When I sit down with couples and I always say, here are the vows we're going to take. It's the basis of a covenant of love. This is not a working relationship. This is a covenant, right? For better or worse, sickness and in health, richer or poor, till death do us part. That's the covenant that you're making. And as I I, uh, flip through those uh, pages, I realized in every case, 
no matter if it was 15 years ago or just last year, 100% have faced things they could have never expected or anticipated. Hey, friends, we all, we all face things more powerful than we are. Where'd this brokenness come from? We live in a broken world. Where did it come from? The Bible says it comes from us. We did the breaking. See, it's not just that we all experience the breaking. It's that we actually all participate in the breaking. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when the world is plunged into death and darkness and despair. And then we just keep reading. Cain murders his own brother. Jacob deceives his brother. Esau subverts an appetite for valuable things in order to cultivate an appetite for things that are shallow and temporary. Joseph's brothers betray him and sail him into slavery. Tamar is abused. Leah is mistreated. Every family we read about in Genesis is completely dysfunctional, and we can't even get out of the first book of the Bible without seeing that right. Man, when Genesis 3, the fall happens, the consequences are immediate and profound. So, so no doubt something has happened in your life that's revealed to you that the world really is broken, right? Many. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions, you might think it would say, of the foolish, right? He said many are the afflictions of the foolish. Of, of course, the foolish have afflictions. Somebody says many are the afflictions of the righteous. So the world is broken And speaking of where we started, an employee or covenant understanding of your relationship with God, sin is when we tried to fire God from being God and replaced him with us and said, now you work for me. And that doesn't happen. It doesn't work. But we are absolutely bent on trying to live life apart from him, and we are therefore broken in every way there is to be broken. So... The world is broken, that is point number one, but praise God, it's not the last point, amen? Because God has done something in response to the brokenness. And that's number point number two, God makes promises to us that are trustworthy. The fall in Genesis 3 happens when certain lies were believed. So restoration in the world begins and in your life when certain promises are trusted. Have you noticed that a lot of people and a lot of things make promises to you? Your whole life, don't they? Right now, people are making promises to you. And you may be believing some. Hey, money makes promises. Did you know that? Have enough of me, you'll be good to go. Very common promise in our culture. Sexual desire makes promises. Enough of me, and you'll have a better life. Governments make promises. You make promises, and I make promises. But one of the things that suffering and hardship does... Are we listening together? One of the things, one of the things that suffering and hardship does is reveal to you what promises you really are believing and where you've really decided you'll build your life. Part of the brokenheartedness is when you realize you've trusted in something that's not sustainable. I mentioned to you earlier that Job lost just about everything there was to lose. But the entire theme of the book of Job is he had one thing left, and that was the Lord. The world is broken, but God is not. Amen? 
The world is broken, but God is not. I want to give you two specific promises. You've likely heard them, but I want you to think about them with me for a moment. Two specific promises is, first of all, Jesus promises to be with you always. To be with you always. We hear an echo of this, of course, in verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. When the unexpected happens and the overwhelming does occur, you're always left changed by it. Nobody goes through suffering and comes out the same way as they entered it, right? I, I've, I've learned, I've learned that suffering really reveals me to me. If you go through suffering, you may become more cynical or more angry or or more discouraged, or you might come through it with greater confidence in God and more joy despite the hardship. You can, by God's grace in the midst of suffering, learn from God and receive from God a strength that is independent of your own circumstances, your own health, your own intelligence, and your own strength. The difference between the two, cynical, angry, checked out, done, and more joyful, more patient, more faith, is whether or not you believe the promise that God really is with you in the midst of it. He says it, verse 18, the Lord is near. Sometimes when you're brokenhearted, you don't believe that. The first lie we are prone to believe when we suffer is that God is not near or there is no God at all. But this promise Jesus makes, I will be with you always. Do you remember when he said it? Matthew 28, part of the Great Commission, right? Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples. What are they about to face? The Holy Spirit's going to come and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Go. While you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What are they going to face? Man, they're going to face so much suffering. He makes this promise to those he knows will be harassed, imprisoned, and, imprisoned and, and killed. They will suffer for Christ's sake. Where is David when he writes this psalm? Suffering for righteousness' sake. And the same promise in both situations is the Lord's nearness. When Julie and I were expecting our first child, Mary Clara, uh, Julie had done some reading and said, uh, I read in an article that it's good for the dad to kind of talk to the baby as we go along. And I said, I probably said, where did you read that? And then as we were sitting together one night, she said, no, I'm ready. I think, you should, I think you should try it. I said, well, this just seems strange. I love my child, but just talking to your, it just seems strange. So why don't we just try it? Well, the Red Sox were doing pretty good that year. And so I just said, hey, watch the Red Sox game. And, oh, you're going to love the Red Sox. We'll, we'll be big fans. And, you know, it was a good year when Mary Clara was, we were expecting her. The Red Sox won the World Series and the Tar Heels won the national title. It was, we had a lot to talk about when I started talking about those things. But, but, but the concept was just becoming familiar with your voice, right? The day she was born, April 24th, 
glorious moment, right? There's your first child, and oh man, your heart's just right there. But like most babies, she's just screaming, right? Screaming, screaming. And the nurses are working and whatnot, and, and uh, I, I walk over there, and I say, hey, Mary Claire, it's Daddy. I love you so much. And now, you're just going to think it's a sentimental dad. And maybe it was. Maybe it was just coincidence. But when I spoke, she calmed. And she was laying there, and she kind of looked up at me, and she heard my voice. Now, I know I'm dad, so I might read too much into it, but it was like she had a look on her face and said, hey, I know you. I belong to you. You belong to him. He is not going to leave you or forsake you. That's the second promise. Hebrews 13.5. So if you've got Psalm, turn with me. It's the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. And I'm asking you to turn there just so you can see this with your own eyes. Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus promises never to leave you or forsake you. And I want you to see right where that happens. Verse 5, keep, Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I called this sermon hope for the uh, hurting. I could have called it contentment in a cave because it's the same thing. Now, what's the contrast? Keep your life from the love of money told you earlier, money makes promises. In fact, the number one God replacement in your life is money. You'll start to look to money for what only God can provide for you. So he says, don't do that. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Where does contentment come? Does contentment come having enough money? No. You'll never be content with the amount of money you have if you love money. Where does contentment have? Trusting he will never leave me or forsake me. Your contentment right in the midst of suffering is tied to believing this promise. Now, I believe it's true and bears out in Scripture. The greatest witness opportunity you have in your life is when you are content in the midst of adversity. Because that is a category the world around you has, not, uh, has no category for. Sure, we can understand why you love and trust and follow the Lord so far as your life is easy and comfortable, but you end up in a cave? Or as Job's wife said to him, why don't you just get it over with, curse God and die? I don't curse God and die because I believe he'll never leave me or forsake me. I've also seen when I face hardship and suffering in my life, though, of course, most have had far more than I've experienced I'm very quick to be discontent, impatient, and irritable. It proves my joy is weak, my love for God is shallow, and my worship of Jesus can be fickle. And Lord, I want to not be that way. And it's for that very reason, right? When I face hardship and suffering and get impatient, that Jesus could leave and forsake me, right? Oh, that's who you are. But he's he's promised not to. God is faithful to you. Not because you are righteous, but because he is. And now I want to turn back to Psalm 34 so you can see this as well. Brings me to point number three. We will not always live in a broken world. Not always. 
Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. Something important happens as we're reading, and I want you to pay attention to the pronouns. Some singular, some plural, and I want you to see that. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. All the Bible is about Jesus. Amen? It doesn't start to be about Jesus in the New Testament. It's always been about Jesus. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And Jesus is right here in Psalm 34. And I want you to see that. Let's think together for a moment. Where is David? He's in a cave. How did he get there? Because someone else make, is making a claim on his throne. David is the one who has a heart after God's own heart. David is the one who stands up and defeats the giant that nobody else can. We track him together yet. And where does that get him? It gets him in a cave. And I think that's already enough evidence to point us to Jesus. But look at verse 20. Kind of a random statement to make, isn't it? keeps all his bones not one of them is broken how many of you have ever had a broken bone well can't be talking about you then who is that wouldn't it wouldn't you be able to take verse 20 out of the psalm read it from start to finish and it still flow right so why is it there you know why it's there because friends there's only one who's righteous There's only one who cries out. And it's through him that you are delivered. You know what was happened with Jesus on the cross, right? Sun was about to set. It's getting late in the day. And they uh, start going to the criminals who were crucified, uh, breaking their legs, right? without being too gruesome about it, breaking the legs so that the feet that are nailed to the cross can no longer push up because it's in pushing up that you would be able to take a, take a breath. Take a breath. When they got to Jesus, they didn't break his legs. Why? Already did. Already laid down his life. Because Old son of David sitting in a cave in the midst of adversity way back had made this statement. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So can I think of it? Maybe think of it this way. At the cross, Jesus says, I'm going to take your identity. You're not a good worker. I mean, you're far from it. Never on t- it's not just a matter of, not, I mean, you're just a rebel. I'm going to take it on myself. And, and 
At the same time, what Jesus does at the cross is it not just takes your identity, he gives you his. And he says, I'm going to clothe you in my righteousness. You want to talk about five stars. I mean, he's the name above all names. And now you are in Christ. But I think I'd like to do a mashup of my illustration at the start. Because it's not a workplace. It's a covenant. Can you imagine doing that even after the spouse said, I don't want to be married to you. My heart is set on another. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he kept coming after you even when you turned from him. We're talking about wages. The wages of sin is death. Jesus is the only one who ever chose to die. Now, some people might have chosen when they die, in an act of bravery, maybe, to save others. But had they not died then, they would have died some other time. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. We all die because we sin, but Jesus lays down his life as the sinless one. He chooses to die. He didn't deserve any breaking, any trouble, any afflictions. But the prophecy is he was crushed for our iniquities. It helps me to know that we have a God who didn't break the world but has entered into the brokenness and has begun putting it back together. What we have right now in the world is we're living in the in-betweens. We live in the in-betweens of Jesus coming near, bearing our sin, and beginning the work of healing the world. We live in the already, right now, of forgiven sin, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, the transforming of our hopes and desires away from sinful things to righteous things. We are heading home, but we're not there yet. However, on the basis of what Christ has done, I'm believing and trusting I am going to get there. Amen? Anybody with me? I've got no idea what tomorrow might bring, how the brokenness of this world will show itself to be broken But I have a God who is near and has promised to wipe away every tear in making the new heaven and the new earth. In this world, you will have trouble. But, as Jesus says, I've overcome the world. So we're going to have a time of response. And the invitation this morning... Honestly, it's for the brokenhearted. Something happened in life, and that's the way you would describe it. It's broken me. Crushed in spirit. And the invitation is an encouragement. Can you ask God to give you grace to renew your trust that He is near, and though your afflictions be many, He will deliver you out of them all. And I can say that with confidence because in Christ, he has already delivered us from the afflictions of our own sins. You can trust him. Let's stand together and we're going to pray together.
And then the Holy Spirit would lead you in the right way to respond. It's at this moment, Father, that I ask for help. Because there is a way of having proclaimed these things that it could bounce right off of us. Yes, Jesus never leaves me. He never forsakes me. Just kind of bounce off and we keep going through life. So I'm asking you to do something that's beyond the scope of any of our ability to do. Would you take the living and active word of God and bring it to bear on our hearts? you are near you demonstrate at the cross that you are near and I thank you that the son of David was laid in a cave and walked out alive having overcome sin, death and the grave forevermore so we groan we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption that is to come as we live in the in between of you having shown yourself mighty and faithful in Christ having promised that there will be a new heaven and a new earth without death, without sin, without cancer, without wars, without fleeing for our lives as we see so many this morning having to do. I pray it soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Until it does come, give us grace to trust you are near.